pursuit. There are times we like it, and there are times we don't. We enjoy the courtship that seems to be leading to marriage. That would be a good pursuit. The person who found your wallet, the child lost in the park. There are times we don't like pursuit. The calls of the telemarketer, a rousing game of dodgeball, or the flash of red and blue lights in the rear view. Pursuit really cuts both ways, and it all depends upon who's doing the pursuing and why they're doing it. This morning, God's going to call each of us to a pursuit. And he's going to call us to this pursuit with very noble intentions, with good goals, with holy aspirations. It's a call to pursue other Christians, other believers who've fallen into sin. It comes from Matthew chapter 18, and in this chapter we'll learn both how to view pursuit as well as how to do it. It's a message this morning that can, at the core, essentially transform a church. If we do this, this goes a long way in resolving much of what ails the contemporary American church. I suspect that many of the problems churches experience come as a failure to follow the commands we'll hear this morning. Broadly speaking, Many across the land, believing believers in churches, don't understand what the Bible teaches about church. They don't understand what the Bible teaches about God's love. They don't understand what it means to love your neighbor. Broadly speaking, many do not understand what genuine repentance entails, nor do they understand what biblical conflict resolution involves. I suspect that many of the problems churches have, from the worldliness inside her walls, to the hypocrisy we hate, to the backsliding we loathe, I suspect that where there's an absence of health, there's an absence of Matthew 18, verses 10 through 20. Because when a sheep finds a wolf who looks sharper, and sounds slicker, and acts cooler. This is bad news for the sheep, and bad news for the flock. Well, the Lord loves his sheep, and I know that you love one another, because God loves his sheep. He pursues us, with a boundless love, and calls you and I to this same ministry. This is a message this morning on what many call church discipline. Others call it church restoration, and I prefer that latter label, and I can tell you why. First of all, the entire discussion in our verses this morning is not about punishment. It's about recovery. And throughout the Bible, God's discipline is meant to recover or to restore it. It's not some kind of judgment, at least not when it comes to his own people. And I would even say that for some, that the word discipline, it, it, it evokes 
emotions and thoughts and feelings that can be essentially a distraction to the message at hand this morning. This word discipline has a way of shutting people down. It has a way of us throwing up our guard. I would hate for you to miss what God has for you because of that word. And again, the message or the point this morning is restoration. So as we hear this text, we're thinking more in terms of restoration. We're thinking about rescue. We're thinking about pursuit. In the first five verses, verses 10 through 14, we learn how to view pursuit. How to view pursuit. Verse 10, Jesus speaks, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, He rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Jesus shares God's love for his people. We're working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. Verse 10 picks up where we left off last week. Remember, Jesus used a little child to to teach his disciples about greatness. They approached him and wanted to know, Lord, who among us is the greatest? Well, he answered none of them, but instead brought along a little child and taught. In verse 3, one must become like children to enter the kingdom of heaven. We must possess a humble trust in God. He then uses that imagery to speak of God's children, of Christians. Verse 6, we're not to cause these little ones to stumble. We're not to cause other believers to sin. And today in verse 10, sticking with that same language, do not despise one of these little ones. If you look at verse 14 then, it is not God's will that these little ones perish. Jesus is continuing this same type of discussion. We might even say that verses 10 and 14, they, they bookend the passage at hand this morning, or this parable. They continue this discussion of conduct for you and I within a Christian community. And these verses, 10 and 14, the the discussion of of little ones, of other believers, they, they give us context for the parable. Four verses, 12 and 13. A shepherd leaves 99 sheep to go find one. Beginning then with verse 10, Jesus says, Do not despise one of these little ones. Do not despise. Do not despise other Christians. You mean to say there's members of a local church community who don't like one another? Well, hopefully that's not the case, but to answer the question, yes, more honestly, If you look backward, one way that we would despise one another or dislike one another would be to cause another to stumble into sin. That's what Jesus taught last week. And even looking forward into what we'll get into this week, we don't pursue those who sin. 
It would be un- unloving to simply watch them walk off and, and go away. It's a, an act of despising. And we see in verse 10 as well that God's love is so immense for his children that he dispatches angels to care for them, to protect them. Some suggest in verse 10 that this is a text that teaches us of guardian angels. Have you heard of guardian angels? It's this notion that each individual Christian has one angel assigned to him or to her, and the job of that angel is to protect. The Scriptures, by the way, leave no doubt about the presence of angels, that God is using them in various ways in this world, in our lives. Psalm 91 verse 11 declares, He will give His angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Jesus quoted that psalm in the wilderness to Satan. Later in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 14, the Bible asks, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Yes, they are. They're out to render service to you. That's what angels are doing. It's very interesting. Even in the book of Daniel, it appears as though Michael the archangel is assigned to the nation of Israel. But taken all together, if the Bible is our guide, it's hard to say with absolute certainty that yes, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we each have a guardian angel. It's difficult to affirm that dogmatically. But the point of the text is that we can see that God loves his children very much to the point of protecting them, to the point of pursuing them. In the parable of the lost sheep, God is our shepherd. And you know this imagery is all over the Bible. This picture of God as a shepherd. From Isaiah to Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, God says, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. In Psalm 80, the author calls God the shepherd of Israel. In Psalm 23, well, Psalm 23 describes that care. By the time we get to the New Testament, we find this imagery fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. What does he say? I am the good shepherd. John chapter 10, verse 11. But this notion then of of seeking, of seeking that which is lost or, or a shepherd pursuing the sheep, it must be taken in context. For example, over in Luke 15, Jesus uses this exact same parable to teach us about the lost, about unbelievers, about going out and pursuing the lost. An example of this would be yesterday. We went out and knocked on the doors of our neighbors in the Columbia neighborhood. In that way, we are seeking lost sheep, lost souls who don't know Jesus Christ yet. But today in Matthew 18, this parable is used in a different way. Jesus speaks of pursuing a Christian the lost sheep in the context is a believer in sin. And the Bible, we know, describes you and I as sheep. And that depiction is all too accurate. We know that sheep are not exactly majestic, mighty animals. That sheep do not reign atop of the food pyramid. Football teams don't select the name sheep for their team name. 
You'll never see a UFC fighter called the sheep. If you and I did behold a handsome sheep depicted in some painting, if he's perched atop a rocky snow-covered mountain, or if he's boldly staring out into the sunset of the African savanna, what would we think of this sheep? We'd say he's lost. (laughs) Because sheep wander. We wander. Isaiah 53, verse 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Again, these parallels are unfortunate, but they are accurate. Sheep wander because they're fearful. Do you know it's never a question for sheep? Fight or flight. They always flight. They're naturally fearful animals. People, too, are this way. They're they're naturally filled with fear. The most common command given in the Bible is do not fear. God gives us that, that often, for a reason. Sheep tend to wander without a leader. Sheep need leading and sheep need guiding. Positively, this is great. They're great animals for herding. But if they get too far from the shepherd, or if they get too far from the flock, they get lost fast. Spiritually speaking, you and I, we need to stick close to Jesus. We need to dial into a local church community. I've never seen a Christian grow stronger and more mature by walking further from Jesus or leaving the church. Like sheep, people are very good at wandering away. And sheep wander because they have vision issues. In a good way, they have a peripheral vision that sees 300, 300 degrees, 300, yeah, 300 degrees, You and I are about 155. That's about what we can see with our vision. That means they can see behind their bodies without moving, but they're really bad at seeing what's right in front of their faces, what's right in front of their noses. They need to be really close to see what's there. Well, how do they figure that out? They wander off to get a better look. They're very poor at death perception as well. That's why it's not uncommon for a sheep to fall off a cliff or float down a stream. Spiritually speaking, you and I, Christ has opened our eyes. But that doesn't mean that we're without error. That doesn't mean that we we never sin. We might wander because we take our eyes off Jesus. So what's the response of the great shepherd to all of this? In a word, it's, pursuit. God does not abandon us. He pursues us. I don't know about you, but if I got a 99% on a test in high school, I'd be thrilled. But not the shepherd of our story. Do you see this? He counts 99 and then he goes off to find the one. And Jesus says later in the New Testament, of all that my father gives me, I lose nothing. Jesus never fails to retrieve a sheep back to the fold. See in this passage how much your shepherd loves you. You're not a statistic. You're not a a number. You know, many farm animals have a plastic tag. It's snapped into their ear, and it's just a number. But Jesus cares deeply about you, about you as a person. If one goes missing... He pursues one 
That's a key word in our text this morning, the word one. Verse 12, if even one goes astray. Verse 12 again, he searches for the one. Verse 14, God's will is that not even one perishes. God delights in rescue. You see, the love of God is a reclaiming love. God does this so well. He is so good at this. He does it perfectly. He reclaims. From the exodus out of Egypt to the return from Babylon, from God's pursuit of men like Moses who murdered a man, to men like David who committed adultery, to Peter who denied Jesus three times, the reclaiming love of God pursues his people. And he pursues you. And he charges you to do the same. You see, I think if we stopped at verse 14, we might be able to relegate all of this to God. To say, he is the chief shepherd. He is responsible for his sheep. Those things are true. But it's also true that God is giving us an example and a pattern to follow. How should you and I view wandering Christians? How should we think about them? Just like a shepherd pursuing sheep. Just like God pursues us. And Jesus directs us what to do. How to pursue a Christian. Verses 15 through 17, how to pursue a Christian. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In these verses, you'll notice four steps that Jesus gives us to restore a wandering brother or a wandering sister. He gives us five commands, and he does it in three verses. In verse 15, the command is go. Verse 15, again, the command is show. Some of your versions will read rebuke or tell him his fault. Verse 16, the command is take. Verse 17, the command is tell it. Verse 17, again, let him be. Now, that's a command in Greek, but it sounds weird if we bring it right into English. It would sound like he be to you. So we need to clean it up a little bit with a helping verb, and that's what your Bibles do. Let him be, but consider that a command. The point is that Jesus wants you and I to take action. If we see a brother or sister sinning, he wants us to go to them. He wants us to try to rescue them and help them. He wants us to do something as opposed to nothing. Notice the progression of these commands. If the believer remains unrepentant in his or her sin, each step escalates. It seems to get more serious. There's more people involved. We know right away it begins with one person privately. Then there's two to three witnesses. Then there's the church. Notice the recipients of the command. Who are these commands meant for? They're meant for for you 
and for me. They're meant for all of us. And I say that just to be clear that these commands are not meant for only pastors or the pastor. These commands are meant for elders. They're not meant for some professional. This is a call to all of us as part of God's family, being God's children. And notice if I can say it this way, notice the novelty of the commands. Not new as in Jesus just gave them, but I might say new in practice. Because I think what Christ prescribes this morning may be a bit unfamiliar to us. And again, what I argued for at the beginning is that the absence of this ministry is the reason that so many churches have the problems that they have today. Other reactions to this situation, whatever it may be, a believer in sin, might be a little more familiar to us. Maybe it's easier just to ignore the sin. Maybe it'll go away. Or maybe it's easy to say that it's none of my business. Well, Jesus clarifies just what our business is in this passage. Maybe it's easier to talk about them rather than to them. In fact, it might even be an expression of a, a tough love. Well, he just needs to learn the hard way. What Jesus commands here is unnatural, and it's uncomfortable, and maybe somewhat new. I want you to notice, finally, the timing for all of this. There's no schedule for repentance. In other words, there's a good deal of flexibility in how we go about this. No two situations may be identical. Every situation requires some balance. On one hand, if a a brother or sister is in sin, we don't want to move too fast and become uh, uh, unmerciful and become harsh. We're not trying to check off boxes and move through some process here. But on the other hand, we don't want to be too slow as, as though we're doing nothing. Maybe in the name of grace, we're actually not doing anything and things are growing worse. So there's no timetable here, and it needs to be handled with a delicate um, delicate hands and with grace and with balance. But the point that Jesus makes is that we're pursuing believers, church family members, those that we love caught in sin. Well, step number one is given in verse 15. This is privately speaking with a believer. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Some of your English Bibles read, if your brother sins against you. Now, if that is correct, against you is included in the interpretation, that would definitely narrow how we apply this. This would be the flip side back to verses 8 and 9. We learned last week how we are to handle um, sinning against another person. This would then be the case of another person sinning against us. And this interpretation actually works better with verse 21 if you look down there. After Jesus is done speaking, Peter comes back with this follow-up question. How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? It sounds like Peter is understanding this as against you or against him, against me. Other Bible versions read if your brother sins. Simply leave it at that. It's more broad. It's, It's more wide open. That means that our application would be more broad. Uh, Not just a sin that is committed against me, but any kind of sin I see my brother trapped in. For that reason, I would pursue him. That interpretation fits well with, with the parable we read. Remember the parable of the lost sheep, where 
The shepherd left the 99, he went off to find the one. We discussed it a moment ago. That seems to be pretty broad in scope, that the shepherd's going to go out no matter what reason the sheep left, and he's going to bring him back. Well, honestly, it's hard to know which translation is correct. Does it include against you? Is it limited? Or is it more broad? Is it just if he sins? I take the view that we ought to be pursuing both of these. Those who've sinned against us personally, but then also those who've just wandered into sin apart from us. But I believe this also raises yet another question. For what sins do we pursue a brother? Well, I think, first of all, the sin needs to be outward. We're not wagering guesses at someone's motives or their attitude. We're not trying to go after someone for their thoughts. I would say it needs to be the type of sin that that we could see or hear. And secondly, and this is really the point of the passage, the sin is unrepentant. Here's an individual who, who has no intention of stopping. And that's, again, why the steps are escalating in this passage, because there is no repentance. Well, where this is true, this is identified if we could see the sin or hear the sin, if we see a a brother caught in sin, it starts with a private discussion. And at no point, not here and not through the fourth step, we're not trying to embarrass people. We're not trying to shame people. We're not trying to go after people with some kind of angry vendetta, but the entire time, this is to be done out of love for people. This is to be done with a gentleness. The point is to win back a believer to Christ. Again, the goal is restoration through obedience. We want to restore a believer to Jesus by obeying what Jesus told us to do. Most solutions happen at this level, frankly. And again, Jesus speaks in that parable of a joy at the return. Verse 16, however, if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If there is no repentance, and again, the timeline needs to be really flexible in this, circumstances can vary. If there's no repentance, one or two more people get involved. You know that you would move from one step to the next because there's been enough of a duration of time to witness a lack of repentance. The purpose for this would be twofold, the purpose for bringing one or two with you. First, they may be there to help convince the person who is wandering. Again, this works best if there's some kind of relationship, um, there is an interest, a shared interest in seeing this person reunited to Christ There's a love share. They they see a harm and sin. There's an agreement on that. And they want to join in to to call the sheep back to the flock. I'm familiar with one restoration situation where where two women knew another woman and they went together to restore this woman who had wandered off into sin. The thinking was that because there was a personal relationship and because, two, there was power in the two because they had the relationship, that that would be an effective way of winning back a lost sheep. Additionally, these two might serve as witnesses. Let's say that there's no repentance that follows. Well, Jesus, in the second half of verse 16, is quoting the Old Testament. And he's quoting from Deuteronomy 19.15. 
And back there in Deuteronomy 19, the context has to do with verifying facts. Under the Old Testament law, one witness did not suffice. It can turn into like a he said, she said type of situation. And the call was to have an additional witness or two. So witnesses become important. And again, this is not to launch any kind of campaign with gossip, but the goal is restoration through obedience. If he refuses to listen to them, Jesus says, tell it to the church or tell it to the assembly. Jesus now calls for that broadest group of people to get involved. And the third step has effectively added the entire church community to this rescue mission. In my experience, an announcement is typically given at the end of a, of a church service. It's given to church members. And sometimes that campaign can involve the church together, making phone calls, trying to meet, sending texts, sending emails. It's an attempt to, to win back the straying sheep. Again, the goal is restoration through obedience. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. At this point, the church family has pursued the one who has wandered away. He or she remains unrepented, and Jesus says, treat him like a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, a Gentile is someone who is outside of that covenant relationship with God. We often see that word appearing in the New Testament. We have the Jews and the Gentiles. We have God's covenant people, the Jews, and then the Gentiles who are in need of God's saving grace. Some of your Bibles in this verse will read either pagan, let him be to you as a pagan, or let him be to you as a heathen. And again, the point that Jesus makes here is that here we have someone who is, seems to be separate from God and in need of salvation. The tax collector is the specific type of sinner. And Jesus is speaking to this 12 disciples, this group of Jewish men. And in the Jewish mindset, in the time of Jesus, these were a worst of the worst type of people, the tax collectors were. You remember Matthew, the author of our gospel, Jesus called him out of that tax collecting business. They were really viewed as a traitor to their own people. And Jesus says, when the one who wanders refuses to repent through each of these steps, he remains hardened in his sin, he's to be as a Gentile and a tax collector. What do they have in common? Gentiles, tax collectors, they need the gospel. They need the good news of Jesus Christ. They need love. They need a a winsome spirit. They need grace, and they need the gospel. The stray sheep would be a target for evangelism. Though professing faith in Jesus... This repentance, or a lack of it, the lack of repentance, a a repentance characterizes us as Christians in our Christian faith. That repentance seems to be absent from his life. And you and I, we can't judge the heart. We can only go by what we see, and we have to obey Christ. He's laid out for us. The goal is restoration through obedience. But boy, isn't there some other way a better way, an easier way to do this thing we call church. Why would we do this? Well, first of all, we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. 
In verse 10, we do not despise these little ones. The brother to your left, the sister to your right, in this room this morning, each of you, each of them is precious in the sight of God. And we protect those we love, do we not? We look out for them. If one of my children got lost in Sudden Valley, I would go out looking for him. This is a love, again, a reclaiming love of God that we want to imitate. It's a love that pursues a brother or sister caught in sin. We would do this also to be holy. Holy means set apart. You know, a lot of churches spend a lot of time trying to look like the world, but God wants you and I to be different. He wants us to be set apart. He wants us to be unlike the world, and he wants us to be like him. A lot of churches will avoid these verses today. They're not going to come up in a message, and they're not going to come up in practice. The fear is that doing things like this won't attract people. It's more accurate to say that doing things like this won't attract certain people. Because the world is looking for churches that look like them. But Christians are looking for churches that look like Christ. And when we do things like this, we look like Christ. And God's going to bring people to this church, to any church that practices this, because that church values the practice of the Word of God. That makes for a very, very strong church. It may be hard, it may be unpopular, but Jesus is going to build his church. And when Jesus builds the church, we're looking at extraordinarily healthy churches. And we do this type of rescue simply because Jesus tells us to. Remember back in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus said, I will build my church. And his blueprints are always better than ours. His plans always surpass ours. We might look at a plan that Jesus has. He might roll out the blueprint and we might say, no, Jesus, you don't want to put that room in that location over there. Or look, Jesus, you can cut costs by doing this or doing that. Jesus says, no, this is my plan. This is best. And if you follow it, you're going to live in a strong house. In fact, to conclude, if you look at verses 18 through 20, our Lord then gives us encouragement for this work, for the work of restoration. Jesus goes on, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. In verses 19 and 20, Jesus gives an authority to his church. Now, sometimes these verses are presented as a secret formula to get things from God. If I can link up with a buddy who agrees with me about this prayer request, here's the shoo-in to get it. Just keep in mind that the Bible presents many factors impacting God's response to our prayers. We know this is not a shopping spree. And most of all, the context for these verses is very important. Because the context is restoring a wayward believer. 
when two or more people or when the church comes together out of a Christ-like loving compassion for one of her own, for a wayward member, when the church seeks out to rescue and to restore that member, when we follow the steps Jesus gives us, we're not somehow binding God's will here. We are living out obedience to it. And where is Jesus? When we step out in this pursuit, truly I am there in their midst. That means that you do not go at this alone. That we don't go out and rescue alone. That in some way, in some seemingly unique way, Jesus is there with us and he's among us for the work. Today, our Lord calls us to pursue. And to view this pursuit as a a restoration, a natural overflow of of love, and and to do it in clear ways. Jesus has laid out for us how we can do it, how we should do it, and what those promises from him will be. To say it another way, we have a responsibility to one another. When God saved us, he made us accountable to him, yes, but also to each other. There's a story in the Old Testament in which the Lord poses a question and he asks a man, where is your brother? He receives the disappointing response, I don't know. And then perhaps one of the most popular questions recorded in the Old Testament in all the Bible, am I my brother's keeper? Is he? What about you? Are you your brother's keeper? Because in the authority of what Jesus said today, you are your brother's keeper. And he's chosen you to use you in the lives of one another to rescue and to restore, to pursue and to seek. So when a brother sins, go to him, seek him, and pursue him with that same love which your father has pursued you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, these can be hard words. We agree that the plans that Jesus has laid out are perfect. They are the best plans possible for us. But they are hard to do. I pray, Father, for grace, for mercy. I pray for divine power. That when you call us to this work, Father, you would give us a grace to do it. I pray that we would not be afraid. I pray that we would not attempt to shame or to harm. But that our hearts would be so filled with love for one another, we couldn't help but go. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your words. Thank you for your grace. In your name we pray. Amen.